Welcome to the third season of Better News, a series of special podcasts that Salt Journalism is producing in partnership with the American Press Institute. I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Better News offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. The effort is fueled by API and the Knight Lenfest Local News Transformation Fund. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight some of the useful research API has published as part of its Better News initiative. Welcome to the final episode of the Better News Podcast's third season. Today I'm joined by Kamaria Roberts, the recently hired Deputy Director of Local News Transformation at the American Press Institute. Kamaria, welcome to Better News. Glad to be here. So, of course, API is uh, It's All Journalism's partner in producing the Better News Podcast series in which we highlight the good work that API is doing through its Better News initiative. And I'm happy to announce we've signed a new contract with API to produce a new 10-episode season of Better News. But before we get into the new season, yes, this is, yeah, there should have been fireworks or something. Poor planning on my part. (laughs) But before we get into the new season, we wanted to introduce Kamaria and look back at some of the best features from our third season. So first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. What led to this new role for you at API? Yeah, of course. So I met the folks at API in 2019 when I was actually still the with McClatchy and I was asked by our executive editor at the time to be a part of the table stakes program, which I was not yet familiar with, but she asked me to be a coach. And at that time I had no clue what that meant for myself or my career, but um, I was really excited to do it. And I had heard nothing but great things about the program. So I was a coach for the 2019, 2000, 20 McClatchy Gannett cohort, and I had a wonderful experience and learned so much and developed so many amazing relationships in journalism. One of those relationships being that the one I have now with API and now my current boss, Emily Bristow. So we met there. And at that time, Emily was brand new to API herself. And so, yeah, when she reached out with the opportunity, I was extremely happy to get on board just because of the great work that API does and how they had affected myself in my career. And before my time with McClatchy, I was at PBS NewsHour, still working in live television, but also a very busy and great newsroom. So I've had newsroom experience from TV to newspapers and a little bit of radio. So what's going to be your role here at API? Yeah, as the Deputy Director of Local News Transformation, I'll be working with the Table Stakes team to help plan out the major market Table Stakes program, as well as help curate things for the BetterNews.org website. You know, we're really working on that right now, doing some testing and some trainings around human-centered design to better that experience for people, and just to make sure that that's a really known resource in the journalism world, because there's just so many great things there including links to this podcast and, you know, just things that people all over the industry could learn from. And I'm really appreciative to have the opportunity to work so closely with API and especially to shine some light on the Better News Initiative because, you know, it's kind of like what the mission of our podcast or, you know, It's All Journalism podcast is, is, you know, helping journalists, helping newsrooms to, you know, improve the way they're doing things giving them new tools, new strategies, exposing them to new ideas so that, you know, we can create better news. I mean, that's it's in the name. So it's an exciting thing to be a part of. So 
Today, as we kind of wrap up the third season, we wanted to look back at some of the episodes we've had this year, and you've had a chance to listen to some of them, and we're going to talk about what we liked about them and uh, what we learned from them, you know, and maybe some of the table stakes, I don't know, initiatives or things that these uh, particular podcasts shed some light on. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at my interview with LeBron Hill. He's an opinion writer with the Tennessean, and he was involved in the newspaper's Black Tennessean project. You know, tell me what you thought about that. You know, what do you think about that project? What do you think about the things that LeBron was talking about? Yeah, this was a really great piece that LeBron wrote for the Better News site. And also his interview with you was also really good and just really informative because, you know, he talked very, very much about, you know, connecting to his audience. And in this case, specifically the black residents in the, the area that they serve, the community that they serve. And so he, he had a really strong quote about being a publication that covers the African-American community to transforming their newsroom, to telling stories for and with black residents. And I just thought that he did such an amazing job of reaching his audience using social media and the Facebook platform, you know, hearing him talk about it, he makes, you know, something that is for some people, you know, social media and having an online presence that is so hard for some folks at other organizations. He made it sound so easy. And I really appreciate that just because I do think that sometimes when it comes to digital, you know, there is a little bit of lag when it comes to some legacy institutions and especially places that have relied so heavily on print for so long, but LeBron embraced it so well. And it sounds like the payoff was huge. And I bet that he has had influence in his newsroom and it has probably encouraged even his colleagues to, you know, want to be more online. I've talked to actually a couple of people after this uh, podcast was published and they remarked on the fact that this was something that they hadn't heard about, that they thought it was an excellent example of a legacy newsroom, like you said, recognizing that there was a blind spot they had in the, in their coverage. There was a, a section of their community that they had no real connection to and that they weren't really communicating with. Yeah, I thought this was just a, such a smart way to do it. And not that they had to build a whole huge structure, but actually they, they leveraged a lot of the, the tools, their Facebook platform that they already had in place to do this. And, and then they were able to get benefits out of it. So let's listen a little, little bit about what LeBron had to say about that. I mean, as an opinion journalist, we, the one thing that we, that we did, you know, me and David Plossus did was that we just tried to make sure that we were always reaching out to black uh, voices, whether it be black scientists, black librarians, black historians, whatever it was. And we would ask them to write columns for us because we wanted to showcase their opinions. Because it's not just about them being a Black whatever, it's about them being Black but having a voice that's, that's needed in this community. So on our end, the opinion end, I think that was, that was very vital for us is to just keep having those moments where we can reach out and be like, hey, would you like to write a piece? Would you like to, to, to be a part of this? And then it's also, you know, again, reaching out to like members of the community looking for ambassadors, you know, looking for people who have brands and being able to you know, have them on for a Tennessee Voices podcast or a Black Tennessee Voices live conversation and just, you know, having them speak and them sharing it on their feed. And when people see that, you know, this person was on the Tennessean uh, side or was, you know, interviewed by someone from Tennessean, they start to have a different impression of us as a, as a newspaper. So I think those little things are what help us kind of 
that's kind of the strategy that we had was just reaching out to the community, reaching out to, you know, the community that have a brand, that have a following so that we can, you know, give them a different impression of what Tennessee is about. And there you go. That's a, it's a lot of what we were talking about. Yeah, how the Tennessean was able to make that connection with its audience. The next one we're going to talk about is the episode where I interviewed uh, Samantha Melbourne Weaver and Donna Wares about uh, what the Los Angeles Times did during uh, COVID, how they were sort of able to leverage their virtual platform to reach new audiences and provide them with information and even educational and entertaining things. What did you think about this podcast episode? Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. I mean, the LA Times is already just such a well-known and appreciated um, institution, but to hear them talk about how they strategically use their audience's interests to, you know, convert them to online engagers was really just smart and excellent to hear. I mean, the pandemic came and it forced us all to rethink how we go about day-to-day operations. And so to hear them talk about how they use the festival of books, you know, they knew that's a niche audience with a very specific interest. They use that information to create virtual events that this same group of folks would still enjoy and engage with. And I mean, it sounds like the turnout they had was wonderful. I mean, it sounds like they launched a diverse range of virtual events and offered really great exclusives to keep people coming back and not only to keep people coming back for their virtual events but to keep them tuned in from the beginning to the end because if anyone out there knows anything about you know putting on these virtual events you know you might get a thousand signups you might have 800 people at the top of the event but at the end of the event you could be around 250 and so to be able to retain people throughout the length of a virtual event is a really really strong point that they talked about and they talked about how they were able to do that and another thing the great thing that i think about this particular podcast interview is they go in detail about the actual steps they take to making these things happen so if there was ever a newsroom out there who wanted to do better virtual events who wanted to be more engaged with their audience online i would recommend this to them because not only do you hear the success of this you know initiative but you also hear the very detailed steps they took to bring it about. Let's listen to a little bit from uh, Samantha and Donna. So we have a long history of, of putting on events that bring in hundreds of thousands of people in the case of the Festival of Books. So we think our brand is kind of already synonymous with with some events. Yeah, but what's different now is when the pandemic shut everything down, my thought was, well, we can't convene all of those people at USC for the Festival of Books. But right away, while we were still trying to get laptops to reporters and everyone to work at home, I reached out to the video team to say, can we work on producing a virtual book club? Can we find a way to reach our our readers that way? And we got very lucky because not only did the video team help us, but the LA Times Today TV crew lent their assistance as well. That was how what Sam always calls our our virtual skunk works operation was born. Is that uh, what you did, not just for the book festival, for the other live events that you were doing? Well, the book festival was was dead in this and it was not going to come back for 2020 because that was April. That was right away. That's a huge event. We started very small with the pandemic shutting everything down and all resources were to just get the newspaper out every day and cover obviously a major story. We started our virtual operation very 
uh, bare bones just to keep the initial focus was let's just keep our monthly conversation going because we, for our book club, we do author interviews. We do discussions around a book. We had an event scheduled for the spring with two LA Noir writers. And so we said, well, let's see if instead of holding that in a small theater, we could figure out how to move that to a virtual event. And then separately, in response to COVID and sort of the fear and concern that readers had when we really had very little information last March, I had started just doing these really informal video chats that we were broadcasting on Facebook with our science editor and some science reporters. And so sort of simultaneously, we were figuring out these sort of video and where we could broadcast and how that online broadcasting would work while Donna was figuring out how to keep the book club going. (laughs) So it kind of came together because we were both, you know, reaching out to the video team. And I kind of want to echo what you were just, you were saying before we played this clip, I really admire the fact that they were faced with the situation that, you know, the pandemic occurred. This is something every newsroom had to deal with. And rather than, you know, get rid of an event like the book event, they took advantage of the technology that they already had. I mean, they had a, a sort of nascent video setup there and, you know, they sort of blew that up. And so now that's become an essential part of their, their ongoing coverage beyond the, the pandemic, which is, I think, wonderful. And like you said, they're very knowledgeable too. They, they shared pretty much everything that you needed to do. And when we were setting up the interview, uh, they were like, at the very beginning of it, we were turning the microphones like, okay, well, we need to meet. We need to, let's talk about what we're going to do. So they had the whole plan down in their head. They knew what they needed to do to create good content. Check out what they're doing. Check out that podcast episode. And the next one here, and this this actually is almost a combination of the two other clips and, and podcast episodes we're going to talk about. This was in Charlotte, and it was a team up of two different newsrooms to, you know, share coverage, bilingual coverage of immigration in the Charlotte area. And it was a team up between WFAE, the public media station, and La Noticia, the local Latino newspaper. I talked to Judon Marshall of WFAE and, and Hildia Gurdian of La Noticia. And this is just a wonderful coordination of two newsrooms. It was just to hear them talk about how they, they worked together to create content and cover such an important issue for their, their community. It was just, it was just great to hear. What did you think about it? Yeah, I really enjoyed hearing both Jadon and Hilda talk about how this collaboration came about. You know, I think it's so important to think of ways to keep engaging with, you know, Latino and Black and Asian and all the minority communities that are growing, you know, and thriving in our cities. And it's important to take a hard look at our organizations and asking ourselves, are we properly serving all parts of these communities? So to hear them talk about it was really great. And this is actually a perfect example of the sixth table state, which is to partner to expand your capability, your capacity and capabilities at a lower and more flexible cost. The reporter that they hired, you know, works for the both of them and contributes to both of their content. And it just sounds like this has been such a huge payoff, not only for them, but I'm sure for the Latino community there in Charlotte as well. And, you know, this is the mission that public media has, which is to serve. And I think that they are, you know, doing excellent work there. And I hope that this is 
an inspiration for other newsrooms who are considering how they can better engage with communities that they serve and may not have a direct connection to. There probably is an organization or some somebody in that community who you could work with or who is already doing the work who you could talk to. And so I think the more that journalists, you know, learn that collaboration is part of our future and it will help sustain us the better. And I just think that this is something that we will see a lot more of in the future of journalism. One of the things that we would recommend is to get to know the people in the organization, just establish those conversations at the beginning to see why do you want to do this? And then just have those conversations and just develop that relationship with the other newsroom because that relationship has to exist. I mean, you have to have a good relationship there. You have to understand each other. You have to kind of be on the same boat and have the same objective. Kind of, okay, let's do this together. You have to have that understanding with the other newsroom before you start embark on on a project like this, but it it can be done. And then of course you have to just start searching like you don't and I did for a good reporter, because see, we are looking for, for talented reporters. Our reporter is perfectly bilingual. She's able to produce high quality journalism in Spanish and English. So they have to look into that and find, and then start a program. Start, write down the plan. This is what we want to do. This is the objective. And this is how we're going to do it. And be very clear about it. And of course, meet frequently because Judon and I meet very frequently to talk about our plan. Is it going well? Is it going in the right direction? Do we need to make any changes? The next one, this actually got a lot of play because it had the word zombie in the headline. (laughs) It was, you know, talking to John Adams and Aliyah Rao of the Arizona Republic about their strategy to kill zombies on their digital subscription strategy. And this is like a real nuts and balls digital journalism type topic. You grow your list and you've got all these people that you're sending stuff out to, but they never, ever reply. I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you continue to, uh, you know, expand your content? What do you think of this? Yeah, I mean, this is such a strong piece. I was able to meet with this team when 2019, when I was in table stakes, and I had the honor of hearing them talk about it, you know, work through the challenge. And so I've seen the beginning of this initiative. And I just think that, you know, this is just such a popular piece, because yes, the word zombies is um, (laughs) something that makes us all good SEO to click. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But this is just something that's so important to all of us figuring out these digital subscription strategies, you know, all of us are trying to figure out how do we not rely so heavily on print. And this particular case study, it really touches on all of the table stakes. I mean, they use the data. They met their audience where they are. They figured out why people were unsubscribing and they had their loyalists, which were the opposite of zombies. So they were able to define what they wanted and what they didn't want. And so I think that another great thing that they did was they used specific language. So they created the term zombie to describe the person who was no longer engaging with their content. And then they have, on the other hand, their loyalists, who are the people that they hope to convert the zombies to. And so I think the more that, you know, a newsroom comes up with its more specific language for a challenge 
the more success they will have because this is one of those things that everybody in the organization can now understand what the goal is. And I think that's why they've been able to be so successful and have so many outcome wins is because they really sat down and said, okay, what's the issue? How do we define it? And how do we get everyone here on board to help us fix it? So yeah, it sounds like what they did is something that all of us need to be doing in journalism. I mean, this is one of those things that has come up because of digital journalism. This idea of, you know, how do you get people to subscribe? You know, when you had a print newspaper, people either bought it or they subscribed to it and it was delivered to them. You know, we didn't really particularly care whether they, you know, reacted or responded to it. But now we're in such a battle for eyes and for clicks and, you know, actions by our our audience. This is has become such a crucial thing in the sustainability of uh, digital newsrooms. Let's listen a little bit. So on the data side, what we did was... It's not just that we wanted to kill zombies, though no one was hurt in any of the, (laughs) I just have to throw that out there. But we also wanted to, on the flip side, create loyalists. And so we were hitting it at two different sides of things. And so when we looked at the data, we looked at what people were coming to, logged in, you know, what people were coming to, what they were partaking in, in our content. And then on the flip side, you know, we said a loyalist was, you know, three to five times visit within a couple of the days, signed up for a newsletter, all these little different things that would describe what a loyalist is. But when we looked at subscribers and their activity for zombies, they weren't coming zero visits in 30 days. And so if you didn't visit the website in a month, you went into the zombie category. And we had some people who pushed back on calling people zombies and everything like that. But in reality, we highly value this group of subscribers because we want to keep them. It's going to cost us less to keep them than go after them and get them back into the fold. And so what we decided to do was look at what zombies went to the content that they took in in the previous months before they were zombies and that helped us kind of target a little bit about what their interests were and so we we looked at all the data we have the data for about two years now it was one of the first things that we started to do when i got here was collect data within, you know, loyalists and zombies. And so once we had that data of what they, what loyalists liked, what zombies liked, we started to really bring that into our daily conversation. You know, people like Aaliyah, who was a direct contact with the reporters, she had a great hand in being able to kind of shape that coverage area to bring back zombies. And then what we always would talk about is then we evaluated what's working and what's not. And so that's kind of how we got to the data. We've been tracking our data, every story, where we think the audience should be, where the audience actually is for about close to three years now. The one thing I think about when, you know, I think about this episode, obviously zombies, and it's a point that you raised that really not about, you know, quote unquote, killing zombies, although that's the thing that's going to get people to read the story, but it's more about conversion. It's converting 
people who aren't engaged in your content and make them you know, loyalists, people who are going to come back and they're going to engage and, and you know, do whatever you particularly want them to do, uh, whatever the call to action is, whether to read or to subscribe or whatever, which is a problem that we all face. You know, we, we know how to make good content. We, don't, we know how to make good content. We don't always know how to target people or get people to come back to us. It's, it's a constant learning process. That's so true. And I think that with that process, they really did a great job of engaging all of their teams. So it sounds like they had a lot of folks from data and maybe even, you know, talked to some people from the business side of things to help them achieve this. And that also makes me think of the um, Seattle Times. They also did a case study for us focused on subscriber retention. And they talked about how they needed to figure out better customer service and how to communicate better with their customers. And from that, they learned that they needed better credit card systems on their website for people to actually subscribe. So yeah, the better we get at working across teams, um, the, the more we will meet those outcome goals. Yeah, it's funny you talk about credit cards and things. I remember way back when, the beginning of when we were doing install journalism, the, still the argument was people aren't going to buy stuff online. People aren't going to subscribe. People aren't going to, you know, they're going to encounter a paywall and they're just going to walk away. But so much has changed. And part of that is the technology has changed and the, and the, comfor- the comfortable nature that people now have of understanding of supporting content, being able to subscribe for a newspaper or a podcast or whatever. So things change. That's part of the learning process. So this, the Seattle, the Seattle Times thing you mentioned, that's something that hasn't been a podcast, but it has been something that has been part of uh, Better News. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? So they were trying to update their website to make it more user-friendly. And I think that's something that we all have to start thinking about as we start thinking about how to, you know, retain those digital subscriptions. Do we have good user experiences on our website? And so their word, not mine, they described their old tech system as janky. So they had to rebuild that technology and optimize it so that people would feel comfortable, you know, putting their credit card information on their site and stuff. And it takes tech and it takes data, but it's such a good payoff in the long run for legacy print organizations to start thinking about that. What is our online experience like for our users when they go to our site? Is it easy to navigate? Can they easily search for the article they're looking for? And if it looks quote unquote janky, would they feel comfortable putting their credit card information in? Probably not. And if you have a janky website, you know, are people going to trust you? These people can't even get their website to work properly. What do they know about anything that they're reporting? It's all, it's, you know, (laughs) you wouldn't put out a newspaper on janky paper or or broadcast a radio show or or that's low quality. You have to sort of, you know, bring yourself up to the standards and make that a pleasant, you know, effortless experience for your, for your audience. Otherwise, they're not going to come back to you. Again, as we're competing with so many other outlets, so many of the other things in the digital space that are they're calling for people's uh, attention. So <laughs> given technology, it's due diligence so that you don't have a janky website. I think that's real smart. One other thing we wanted to talk about was what the Dallas Morning News, I guess it had expanded its hyper-local journalism. Could you talk a little bit about that? Tell me what they, they did. I, I didn't have a chance to read that particular report. What they did was they created a newsletter and different web hubs for each community that they serve. And 
with that, they created tags to highlight hyperlocal content and promote in-depth journalism for each community. And I think that this is a really smart strategy to meet your audience where they are, as well as kind of use the mini publisher approach to organize the content that you have and kind of funnel people down your site. So you know that this person is interested in this topic and then because they're in this specific tag or under this specific, you know, tab, they're able to find related content very easily. Well, that seems to make sense. And again, goes into what we were saying before about, you know, improving that interface with your audience. So, you know, one of the things that you, you sort of dropped in there when you were talking earlier is that you went through the table stakes process. Could you, could you tell me about that experience? What did you get out of it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I was asked to be a part of Table Stakes, I was initially unsure of what it would be. But um, Lauren Gustis, my former executive editor at the Sacramento Bee, she was such a cheerleader for the program. And she told me about how it was going to help our newsroom and our company. And not only just that, but my growth as a manager and a leader. And she was a thousand percent right. I took uh, the challenge on head on and I coached the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and their challenge was to connect with some different parts of their community that they hadn't before connected with and who they might not have had the most trust with. You know, we planned different listening sessions, and we took a lot of different angles to figuring out this challenge. And at the end, we were very successful with growing their relationships. And I think that, you know, for me, not only was table stakes an opportunity to lead in a new capacity, but it was also just a really great opportunity to meet people in the industry who were like myself and who were not like myself. So, you know, I started off in journalism as a video journalist and a video producer. And so to be able to interact and talk with people from the business side and grow my idea of what a journalist does and what I could be doing as a journalist was just an amazing opportunity. And, you know, to be able to work so closely with the folks at American Press Institute who have countless resources was just a real, real, great opportunity for me and something that I'm still so grateful for because, you know, as a Table Stakes alumni, that was one of the real gems I took away from the program is having that network of super smart and super awesome journalists who just keep reaching out to whenever things came across my desk that I just wanted to brainstorm with someone or maybe just ask a few questions with someone outside of my organization. So, I mean, as soon as they reached out to me and told me that there was an opportunity, I really had to sit down and think about it. But I mean, once I made up my mind, I was so happy just, you know, to have that chance to join the team just because table stakes for me was honestly career changing and, you know, probably life changing too. So I hope that this um, will be the same for other journalists as the program continues. Yes. Amen to all of that. The One of the nice things I, I've discovered about working with API and talking to people about better news, you know, we're all facing the same challenges. That doesn't mean we all can't help each other. And, and there aren't resources out there that if we put the effort in, if we take the time to look into them, make the effort to learn and try something new, you know, you can have success. I mean, obviously you had success. You're working for API now. You, you said that it was a, a career changing experience and uh, mm -hmm. I'm really glad to hear that. So Kamaria, <laughs> thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm looking forward to working with you and, and maybe having you again on the podcast. We can talk about some of these better news and table snakes. I keep wanting to say table snakes. <laughs> 
Snakes and zombies. Um, snakes and zombies. That's exactly what it is. So anyway, coming back on the uh, the podcast to talk about you know the the Better News Initiative and table stakes, not table snakes. Thanks a lot, and I wish you luck on your your new endeavor, your new career with API. Thanks so much, Michael. I mean, it's really such an honor to be here on the It's All Journalism podcast. You are also a wealth of information, and I am really happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Better News, a co-production of the American Press Institute and It's All Journalism. API's Better News Initiative offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. You can find out more about the Better News Initiative and this podcast at betternews.org.